Welcome to episode 21 of Behaviorally Speaking, a podcast featuring board-certified behavior analyst Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi. On this episode, our hosts are joined by two guests to discuss the topic of inclusion in the disability world. Our guest, Danny Jordan, discusses his journey raising a daughter with a disability. Our guest, Nicole Kelly, discusses her lived experiences as a person with a disability. Together, they break down what inclusion means for them and how parents can think differently when raising inclusive kids. Behaviorally Speaking is brought to you by Will, a Rethink Division, an employer-provided digital well-being solution to support parents and caregivers of children with learning, social, and behavioral challenges. And now, here are your hosts, Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi. Hello, and welcome to our 20th episode of Behaviorally Speaking. I'm one of your hosts, Angela Nelson, board-certified behavior analyst and mother of two. And I'm Kristen Bondi, also a board-certified behavior analyst and mother of three. Hello, 20 already? I know. I can't believe it. (laughs) No. So I actually have a funny story to tell you. And um, unlike last time, it actually, I can make a connection to this story to our podcast today. So that's good. Remember last time we were talking about the weather? (laughs) We were like, yes, really draw a connection there. Um, So anyway, so, so let's see, it was last week now. Um, I was doing like a course I was just doing after, after work hours, I was doing a course. So my kids are used to me not doing anything on the computer during that time. It's like 5.30 to 7.30 PM. And so my husband was getting the kids ready for bed and I finished up and I came out of the room and I went into the office and I was said, Hey Parker, what are you doing? And he said, why are you doing a course? Why are you going to school? And I was like, Oh, you know, I'm just doing this course. And he goes, but you're a grown up, so why are you still learning? And I just thought that is so interesting that he said that because mm-hmm. from his perspective, it really highlighted that as parents, we we know kids look up to us, but they think that we know everything, which which I thought was was good. But it it I don't know, it really um, it solidified really like why we do this podcast and really the existence. So you know, our podcast is to teach and support parents and really supporting them with learning and, and how they evolve as a parent as things come their way. Um, so I thought that was a nice segue into today, which obviously we're going to be talking about inclusion. Yeah. And we have two really amazing guests um, to support our conversation today. And we really wanted to highlight inclusion because this is an area that hopefully um, all parents want to get better at when it comes to helping their kids either feel included or maybe having their kids advocate for themselves to be included or or even just teaching their children to be the one who's the leader or the role model when it comes to inclusion. So being um, inclusive of exactly. others. Yeah. Right, right. So we'll let them introduce themselves and their journey uh, with inclusion. But we have two really amazing people along the way with us today. We have Danny Jordan and Nicole Kelly. Yay! You guys want to do a little quick (laughs) intro of yourselves and then we'll jump into the convo. Sure. Did you want me to do it like in a, like a rap style or just like normal (laughs) talking? I don't, I don't know. I mean, whatever you, whatever. I don't know how your guests usually introduce themselves. I I don't want to, you know, be the one like, oh, wow, that was really boring. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, well, I think I've made it not boring by coming in with a joke. Um, my <laughs> name is is Danny Jordan. I uh, am. I'll go along with the introduction train here. I am a father of two. Just recently had our second. I am a girl dad for life. I have a, a three year old daughter named Emerson and a two year old daughter now named Riley uh, from Southern two California. Old. Two uh, months. No, she's five now. <laughs> <laughs> five month old she's she's oh, getting big you said two years did i say two years yeah oh my gosh the, <laughs> this is how you know that i am not sleeping at all this is how uh, you yes. know that, that i have, yeah, a, you have children oh my gosh what is my name again did i say Danny <laughs> jordan um no i i have a three-year-old and a five-month-old my goodness gracious um yes not sleeping very much but quote unquote mm, loving every moment of it. Um, so I, uh, outside of being a dad, I am a, a reality TV producer. I've been working in the entertainment industry uh, exclusively for the last 13 plus years now, which is wild. Uh, I've been fortunate to work on a lot of great shows that I'm sure people know, like Extreme Makeover Home Edition and Storage Wars and Biggest Loser and a lot of other great shows and some questionable ones uh, along the way. Uh, <laughs> and about three years ago, uh, over three years ago now, my gosh, um, when my wife was pregnant, pregnant with Emerson, our, our first uh, our first child, um, I really, my, my focus in terms of storytelling shifted pretty, pretty dramatically in what I became passionate about and what I wanted to put my time, energy and, and skill set into. And, and uh, that's inclusive uh, children's literature and inclusive children's media, which is a result of our daughter, uh, Emerson, being born with uh, an upper limb difference. And that really just started sort of this um, this mission for me, this call to action to do whatever I could to contribute to a world that is more inclusive, empowering and educated when it comes to disability. And so we created the children's book series called The Capables. And I'm thrilled to be here to chat more about that and, and being a parent and and cracking mediocre jokes with you all today. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> awesome. And we also go way back to high school. Yes. Danny and I have known each other for a long, long time. So. Oh, my goodness. Awesome to have do you. We, do we want to tell the like the reality? Nope. No, of, we, no. Oh, we don't. No, okay. we don't. You never dated. Okay. <laughs> That's what everyone's going to assume when you go, no, 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 we don't. No, no, no. That's what it makes it sound like I broke your heart or something like that. When in reality... <laughs> You broke mine. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aunt Nicole. Hello. <laughs> How do I follow that, Danny? <laughs> yeah, no, th thank you, ladies, for having us. Uh, my name is Nicole Kelly, um, and I am not yet a parent, but someday excited to be so. Um, however, I am somebody who was born with an upper limb difference. So as Danny started his journey um, with Emerson and really started his call to action as far as inclusion, um, I'm somebody that he kind of has found on his journey as somebody who really has the lived experience um, as knowing what it's like to be the kiddo who actually grew up in that body and grew up in that experience and kind of bumped up against the barriers that exist for somebody who lives in a body like me. Um, so I, yeah, I kind of in my background have spoken a lot and done a lot of um, other work that has to do with specific to um, disability and to limb difference. So just feel really happy to kind of be a piece of the puzzle as far as Danny's journey and the inclusion of the capables, which you'll hear about here soon. And yeah, that's that's my story and how I'm with you today. Nicole, awesome. you left out a, a vital piece of information. Not vital, but I think it's a really cool factoid about you. Okay. What did I you, leave out? 
you were a former Miss Iowa. <laughs> I was. It will haunt me that out. My life, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think that's. Yeah. I think that's it, cool. Yeah. Well, it, it, thank you. Yeah, it definitely that experience. As far as um, I spent a year in the actual job, it is a real full time job for an entire year of your life. Uh, being Miss Iowa and a piece of that puzzle was actually going to Miss America. And it was actually going to Miss wow. America that a huge, um, a huge awakening as far as how I bump up against the world and how the world views my body and mm-hmm. treats my body and reacts to my body. It was a huge eye opener and really a, a big inciting incident for me as far as wanting to continue on um, the inclusion and the education pathway because I would hope to maybe smooth out that path for whoever may come after me and have a body like me at Miss America because it was hard. It was hard to really face the reality in that space of straight up how the world views and talks about my body in that space. So yes, that is a piece of my story. Yeah. A piece. Vital was a a bad word to use. I'm sorry. A really (laughs) cool. Yeah, Yeah, it was an inciting incident. So it is important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. I, I'm wondering if, um, if that was a part of the pageant process, if, if there was a spotlight put on it, or if, if you wanted to talk about it or how did that, how did that play out? Sure. So as silly as it sounds, kind of in stepping into the pageant world, I found this world where I got to audition and the audition was just for me to be myself, right? I could walk onto a stage, walk into an interview room, and all I had to do was be me. And I I had interests in the theater world and in acting, but in those spaces, those were closed rooms to me. I couldn't walk into an audition room because my body didn't fit any of the descriptors or any parts that were being cast, right? So I kind of saw the pageant world as this inn where all I had to do was be myself. So with that being said, I anticipated talking about the fact that I had a different body. However, I did not anticipate the level of attention that my body would receive. Um, Mm. Instead of doing a handful of local interviews, uh, I I quite literally became world news when I actually like won my ticket to go to Miss America. um, And the attention was overwhelming. And on top of that, the stories being told about Mm. my body um, felt very hurtful because Mm. Everyone was using this as an opportunity to say, isn't this so inspirational? Look at this different body going to Miss America. When really what the story should have been focused on is flipping that on its head and asking, why is it that the Miss America organization hasn't, why haven't we seen bodies like Nicole on this stage until right Mm -hmm. now? Right. That should have been how the stories were focused and what they were talking about. But instead, it really felt like this us versus them dialogue, which I now realize, you know, having years to, to understand and study and to go to journalism school, that this is literally the way that journalists are taught to talk about disabled bodies. Right. So it's actually a problem in our culture. Um, but anyway, this is my long way of saying it just was very eye-opening, uh, hard, a hard um, experience, actually, and one that really lit the fire to, to continue on in inclusive projects 
like the one that I've joined Danny on. Awesome. All right. Well, um, should we dive into some of the other questions we have? Yeah, let's do it. I think the first one would be good because it kind of level sets everything, but it might be important for both of you really to maybe tell our audience and and maybe describe a little bit of what inclusion means to you. Nicole, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what that inclusion means to me is... I, I always show um, the Apple box picture where there are uh, where there are kids who are wanting to look over a fence and mm-hmm. everybody gets the same size Apple box in order to peek over the fence. However, that's not really inclusive of our shorter or smaller friends, right? So really in reality, the equity of the situation mm-hmm. is that maybe Apple boxes need to mm-hmm. be different sizes in order for everyone to be able to see over the fence. And I really just look at inclusion as um, pausing to think and maybe change pieces of our world where there are barriers currently in, pr- in place. So that way all of our friends, everybody together can look over that fence and see see over. I love that. Yeah. There's, um, and you could Google, I think, what Nicole, what you're talking about. There's all sorts of images. I think it's equality, equity, and liberation. I think that's the three. Yeah. The spectrum of it. So, yeah, go and look it up. Good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, my perspective for that question is different because I'm not a person who identifies as living with a disability. So, for me, like when I, advocate for inclusion, I'm advocating for for my child, right? And and mm-hmm. wanting equality and equity for her in, in, in her life and, and other kids who are like her and adults who are like her as well, mm-hmm. or identify as the same as her. But for me, I look at it from like, what do I do? What is my skill set? How can I be more inclusive in, in what I do professionally and personally? And that's really sort of where the approach comes for me. And, and as it pertains to the capables it's something that is always evolving and growing. You know, when when I wrote the first book in the series, Ray's First Day, it really was simply in the beginning a promise to Emerson to just write, illustrate, and print one book where her and I could read a book together. But then, mm-hmm. and I knew that I wanted to have voices on our journey with the capables that had the lived experience, but I hadn't connected with those people yet. And frankly, it hadn't grown to a point where I thought, that it was going to enter the lives of anyone other than my home, you know, the people mm-hmm. who lived in my home. And then when we did our Kickstarter campaign and we had hundreds of people from around the world backing us and, and thousands of people finding us on social media, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is going to be a thing in the world. And it's going to go into the minds, homes, schools of kids all around the world. And that's when I reached out to Nicole and some other trusted friends and colleagues to really help make sure that the first book we released uh, was authentic as, as, as possible, uh, mm-hmm. authentically represented limb difference in that experience. Um, but what I've learned for me personally is that though I think we did the, the right thing by including people in the process, I should have included people sooner, um, in our process when we were building the framework of the capables and the foundation upon which everything stands. So for me, mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with one of our board members, Larry, not long ago about the idea of a seat at the table. And I think where we really need to shift that perspective is it's not 
it can't be about having a seat at a table in a room on a foundation that's been built by hundreds of years of like systemic issues that exist in our country. It has to be a brand new foundation that's laid, a brand new room that's built and a brand new table that everybody brings in together. And that's what we're committed to with the Capables. And that's why with the second book in our series, before I wrote one word of text about Lex and her story, we had a call with our, our seven member advisory board to figure out who Lex is. You know, there's a lot of intersectionality in, in her story. She has a disability. She's a girl and she's black. Three things I have no business digging into and trying to like tell that story because that's not me in any way whatsoever. Um, so it's been mm -hmm. vital for us to include people from the very beginning, mm -hmm. not when you already have a story in place, not when the script is so locked or whatever it might be in a film or a television show or a reality TV show that's sold to a network. You have to include people from the very beginning because I know from the inside, once creative has been sold to a network, there is very little that you can change at that point in time. So yeah, you're going to make some concessions here or some concessions there. You know, a perfect example of this is what happened with, with the Super Bowl recently. And, you know, there being this opportunity for those who, uh, you know, are, are deaf uh, to to watch the, the halftime show and they had somebody signing, but you couldn't watch it on the broadcast. You had to go to an app. Like mm -hmm. that's... Mm -hmm. That's not inclusion. That's like, oh, we should do something and they scramble last minute and now they make it happen. And they check the box. Yeah, right. it's great. It's great that there's a conversation happening. But if you don't have that conversation from the very beginning of when you're planning out your Super Bowl halftime show or whatever it is, it will always become an afterthought and there won't be equity. And mm -hmm. so that's why when I think yeah. of inclusion for me as a storyteller, for me as someone in, in the entertainment industry, it starts from day one. And yeah, that may mean some projects don't sell. And, mm -hmm. and you know what? I would much rather, I went through this recently with a reality show that Nicole was a part of with me. We were trying to do like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, but for the disability community. And we pitched mm -hmm. this to 13 different big companies. And the feed, feedback we got from everyone was the same is it's, um, it's too earnest. And so they, my agents wanted us to change the creative for the show to higher stakes. And, mm -hmm. you know, the question from our cast was, and rightfully so, why do we as disabled people have to have more stakes for our story to be interesting? Yeah. And there might be producers out there who would decide to change the creative to try to get this show sold, but I refuse to do that. And I think until our industry makes that shift and includes people in the process from day one, stories will always be told incorrectly and people will not get the equity that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what you're saying. And I, I know we've got all these good questions for you guys, which we probably will run out of time, but I just, it's making me think about us as clinicians and a new kind of revelation that I've come to in the recent years, which is, you know, when I write articles or when we host podcasts, we really are starting to include people with lived experiences. You know, it's not enough to say, well, I know what all the research is and I've seen this be very efficacious for all sorts of children and therefore, you know, I know mm -hmm, it's best, right? right? And I think right. that sometimes you get up on your high horse like oh, I'm a clinician, blah, blah, blah. But things have really changed for me and I think I have a new perspective now, which is I I don't have that lived experience. I have one perspective and yeah, I know a little thing or two about research and therapy and interventions, but that's not enough anymore. And so, you know, that's, that's really a change that I've made in my career. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, and I can only speak from the perspective of somebody, you know, who doesn't have a disability is that I think it's historically people in the non-disabled community have been looking for some sort of catch-all, one-size-fits-all answer as to how you talk about 
disability or this disability specifically. You know, one of our board members, Ryan Haddad, who's just an incredible human being, so dynamic, so smart, so funny. Yeah. He he said to me, you know, early on, he's like, I could offer you my perspective as a person with cerebral palsy. He goes, but I'm just one person with cerebral palsy. He goes, mm -hmm. that's the problem. He goes, there's so many people, they want to just have like a one size fits all answer as to like, this is the language I use. And this is how I talk to this person. And the reality is like, none of us are that simple as human beings, whether you live with a disability or not, we all have lived experience that filters the way that we process things in life. And, and I think that's also a part of like being inclusive is to realize that like, just like you've had all these experiences happen in your life, trauma, sadness, joy, whatever that has influenced who you've become as a person mm -hmm. that has happened to every other person. And, and I think it's because historically the non-disabled community, not everybody, but a lot of people, and maybe it's a systemic thing is wanted to define those people by their disability mm -hmm. rather than looking at it as just one aspect of who they are as humans. And that's just my perspective on the outside looking in. And obviously Nicole has a totally different perspective on that. Totally. No, yeah, I would agree. It's 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 individual and, you know, even within the disability community itself, depending on what you're talking about, who you're talking about, the needs are so different. Um, the experiences mm -hmm. are so different between, yeah, socioeconomic status or just, right. you know, is it visible? Is it invisible? Is it, you know, the whole the whole gamut of things that's not it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can I share a quick story actually about something that, that, that I encountered personally? Um, and I'm sure my mom will listen to this. So mom, I love you. No, I love you when I tell her a story. Um, so when we were launching the, the book, um, I was doing a lot of interviews. Nicole and I were doing a lot of interviews together and I was, you know, I'd share it with my mom. I was like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, this is challenging at times for me, you know, to, recognize where my space is and all of this and want to want to get it right as much as I possibly can and and to have conversations with Nicole and other members of the disability community and to share this story publicly and she goes well I just worry that you're you're becoming too much of a pretzel like you're trying to bend and shape yourself to like be all these things for different people and I said well mom maybe that's what it takes Maybe it takes somebody who's not had this experience in their life to feel like a pretzel, to get a little glimpse, not of like understanding, because you can never pr properly understand what another person's gone through, but to really have deep empathy for what another person has gone through. Because people who are different because of their disability or because of their race or their sexuality, historically, they've had to turn themselves into pretzels their entire lives to try to fit into situations. And I mm -hmm. don't think we, as those who don't, who, who identify as the majority can properly even relate to that unless we get the feeling of how uncomfortable that can be to turn yourself into a pretzel. Um, and it is hard and it is confusing and it can lead to anxiety and it can lead to depression and all these sorts of things that, that I personally navigated. And that was like, Oh my, it, it was like blew it like blew the top off of my brain to be like, Oh my gosh, this is how, the people I'm advocating for have lived in a lot of cases their entire life. Mm -hmm. And I made this choice. I chose to write this book. I chose to put myself out there in the world. This is the way these people were born. And mm -hmm. they're constantly having to try to fit into culture and these systems that were created that they had no hand in whatsoever. Um, so I think until we as the non-disabled community, we as those who are in the majority can feel what it feels like to be a pretzel and try to fit into all these worlds and try to understand and empathize, 
Mm-hmm. That's vital, I think, in changing the narrative because you start to realize how challenging it is and how uncomfortable it can be. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's we we won't ever know what someone else is experiences, but that first step is listening, ha- coming from a place of curiosity, and you know, trying to to kind of have those conversations and try to feel a little, you know, a, a little bit if we can. Um, yeah. I have a call, a, a, a call. I have a, a question for Nicole. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, challenges and struggles and so on. Um, you had mentioned with um, pageant days and so on. And I'm wondering to kind of switch a little bit to back to inclusion. Was there someone or something in your life or even now um, that has facilitated this sense of inclusion? So thinking about, you know, what has made you feel included? So growing up, sorry, I'm trying to carefully formulate my answer here. So I I apologize for a pause, but um, it's not a straightforward answer is is the answer. Mm -hmm. But I think what has been truly most um, has brought me the most peace, if you will, is that kind of growing up, I was constantly butting up against reality versus what those around me were telling me, messaging, right? The messaging from those around me was a lot of times, number one, oh, Nikki, you're no different. And number two, Mm -hmm. if you just try a little harder or try it another way, you'll be able to do it. But what that messaging does, because that messaging is totally incorrect, it Mm -hmm. constantly made me feel like no matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, I was constantly failing. I could never be good enough, right? And and the anxiety that that creates and the, yeah, the feeling of just failure that creates. So in adulthood, um, I really connected into the disability community as a whole and found mentors who um, understood disability history, who understood disability culture. And that really turned personally in a very great way my world on its head because suddenly these realities that I kept bumping into that I understood was cognitive dissonance in my soul, in my mind, and in my heart, all of that cognitive dissonance suddenly started to make sense oh, there! I really am bu- bumping up against these realities. And here's what these realities actually are. And, and oh, people have studied these. And oh, there are clinicians who have answers for me. And oh, there are, there are resources for me. Like it was, it was the first time in my life that people were having a true conversation with me about what my reality looked like. And my reality was that my world is different. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay, but let's actually talk about what those realities are. Um, so it was a whole group of people to answer your question and a whole a whole long time that it really took to kind of plug into that culture and start to get to know different people and just slowly mm-hmm. one by one having conversations with people here and there, picking up a book here or there, you know, like really plugging myself in. But overall, it truly was like accepting that reality and starting the action of kind of joining in. That Mm -hmm. was a huge shift in my piece um, and making me feel like 
suddenly the shift was from I'm powerless to do anything about this to understanding where my power lied and what changes I could start to help facilitate. You know, if I understood what was incorrect and what changes I could ask for, then I could actually start asking for those changes. And that's really what it it did for me. I hope that made sense. Yeah. It sounds really empowering too. It, it, and I see a lot of parallels to what we're talking about right now in the DEI space about kind of colorblindness, right? It's just, oh, everybody is equal. Everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's, that's just very, that's, old, old school way of thinking. Let's actually address what's going on here. And so I see a lot of parallels to, to that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say the same thing. And I feel like a lot of times, um, this kind of goes nicely into the, one of the other questions we had written out, but you know, a lot of times as a parent, so looking at it from a parent perspective, you know, we, if, if we as the parent, because again, think about the beginning when I said, we know everything, right? Our kids think we know everything. So if you get faced with a moment where you don't know how to respond, so this might be a great question for you guys, but you know, if, uh, what could a parent say to their, their child if, if they see another child on the playground, for example, mm-hmm. um, that might have a, a limb difference and, and they, the child wants to go up or the child wants to ask questions or, you know, and as a parent, what, what could we do to, to support that? And I yeah. guess this could be for both of you guys. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one that, you know, for me as a parent of a child with a disability, it's one that I get asked very frequently. Um, and, and I want to say that, you know, my perspective is that of a parent of a child with mm-hmm. a disability. I am not the perspective right. of the person with, with the disability. And within that, you can dive deeper and say, I'm just one parent with my personality and I'm a parent who clearly is outspoken mm-hmm. and wants to advocate and wants to be an ally. And I wrote a children's book and all these sorts of things. So I have an entirely different perspective on it. So I think, again, it sort of goes back to, and I, I totally appreciate your question. I think as it, you know, it pertains to me is like, I'm a parent that I'm happy to have the conversation as long as I'm in a good mood. And as long as I'm not, you know, working or I'm not just like deep in play with my child where this feels like it's going to sort of pull us out of the moment and it just feels like it's not an appropriate situation to have that conversation. I'm happy to have it. I mean, we've, we've encountered it, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and it's been such an interesting journey for me with writing the first book um, because I started writing that before Emerson was even born, you know, and, and Emerson Mm -hmm. has spent the majority of her life in, in the pandemic and isolated from the world so a lot of those things that I knew that we were going to encounter as parents didn't happen until probably later than they would have in like normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't go to theme parks and all these sorts of places where you're around lots of people who inevitably notice and stare and their parents ask them questions. You can see it. Like it's something I've started to to mm-hmm. pick up on now is like you can see when a child notices and you can see when they'll turn to their sibling or when to their parent and to try to get an answer. Um, you know, so, so for me, when we, we, we had the first experience at a park right up the street from our house and there were two little girls, they were sisters and they came running over to say hi to our dog. And then they saw Emmy and they were just sort of like kids playing together. And then the older sister who was probably around five or six years old, you know, looked at Emerson's right arm and said, Oh, her right arm is smaller than the other one. And I said, yeah, you know, that's, that's the way she was born. And she said, well, that's weird. And I said, well, actually, it's it's not weird. It's just different. 
and mm-hmm. we are all different in our own ways, and that's what makes us unique. Um, you know, you have blonde hair, your sister has brown hair. Now that's different than two limbs being different from each other and the way it impacts a person's life. But I think it's important to not immediately draw attention to the disability is like, let's harp on this as like the thing that makes, you know, people different. I think is you, if you can put it into terms that children understand that like, we are all different and it's actually not weird when people are different, mm-hmm. it's normal. Different is, is what makes this world so interesting and, and unique and diverse and beautiful. So let's, let's embrace that and let's dive into it. Um, but it was this really, and I, I shared this with Nicole after the fact is it was a really, it was just such a, wild is the best word I keep coming up with, you know, like experience for me because I had written this moment into a book, but I had never Mm -hmm. gone through it in my own life. Mm -hmm. So it almost felt like the conversations that Nicole and I had had when we were working through the the text or the final version of the book and, and how those conversations would take place and maybe play out in in a healthy, productive way. It was almost like our book sort of became my guide as a parent as to how to navigate this situation. And it was like, it was like so powerful and so cool and, and awesome. And, and so for me, I think if you're the type of parent to sort of talk to the parents out there that you have a, a, a child who's curious, the best thing you can do is to try to educate yourself in the best way you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. comes from listening, listening to individuals like Nicole share their story and, and, and how and how their life has transpired and what language they're okay with, what conversations they're not okay with and what conversation they are okay with. Being more inclusive in terms of the the books that you buy um, and that you bring yeah, into your mm-hmm. homes. There, yeah. you know, being um, mindful about the shows that you, that you put on your television that challenge normal as we have sort of come to know it as society and not just from a disability standpoint, but from a race standpoint, from a gender standpoint in terms of like, mm-hmm. who is the hero? Who, who's the protagonist in, right. in the story? Um, we can be proactive participants in that process. And it's something that we are so committed to with our books in the Capable series is that I know that there are a lot of parents out there who want to have the conversation, but they're terrified. Right. They're terrified because they don't want to say something wrong. They don't want to offend somebody. They don't want to mislead their child. So a lot of times they go, well, don't ask questions or don't, yeah. you know, whatever it might they be. They shut it down. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, as a parent, as a, as a human who lived their life so separate from the disability community up until Emerson was born, I get it. And I'm not saying that you are wrong because it's, that does nothing productive to point a finger at you and say, you're doing it wrong. But I'll tell you a way you can do it right is that you can get a book like ours or or other books that are out there. And if you want to know what they are, message me. I'm happy to share them Um, because we are mindful about including moments in our story that help guide parents as to how to have that conversation and how to answer questions for their children by just reading our story. It's mm-hmm. it's all there. Just read the story to your kid. There's there's an X-ray image in there that shows Ray's arm and why her arm is is shaped in the way that it is, and it explains it to children. So now they don't look at it as weird anymore because now they have the answer. I think that's what kids just want. Mm-hmm. Kids are smart. Like just give them an answer, and they'll turn the page and move on. It's when we avoid things that then kids, like you said earlier, about like, well, my mommy, my daddy knows everything. Why do you go to school? So mm-hmm. when we as the parents, these these authoritative figures, like godlike figures to our children, don't have answers or tell them don't point 
Of course, they're going to think it's weird. Of course, they're going to be scared. Of course, they're going to question. Of course, they're going to stare because they're like, if mommy and daddy, who I look up to and they know everything, don't know how to navigate this, then there must be something wrong with this situation. Um, And the only way to do it, and I'll tell you from a, a person who was and still is not a part of the disability community, is like the only way you can learn is to be proactive. It is not the disability community's job to seek us out and to educate us as the non-disabled community. It is our job to be proactive participants in that process and to go out and to learn and then to implement it into our lives. Absolutely. Here, here. <laughs> anyway. Great answer. <laughs> really passionate about this. <laughs> so Nicole, I actually have a question for you, and we talked a little bit about this when we were kind of chatting last week. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about kind of conversations with your parents, um, what that was like about their experiences and kind of what you learned and and maybe what, in retrospect, you would have liked them to do differently. Yeah, totally. So, you know, just I feel like Danny has said several times in the interview, you know, I don't he, he said, I don't know what it's like to be a member of this disability community. Well, on that mm-hmm. flip, I don't know what it's like to be a, a parent of a child with a disability. That is a completely foreign, uh, unknown um, experience to me. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was an adult person and really starting to process the reality of having this different body that one day I was like, huh, you know, I bet my parents had some hard times with the reality that I was born with one hand. Mm -hmm. As silly as it sounds, I never even paused to think about the fact that that could have been shocking or hard for my parents. I just literally never stopped to think about it. Um, And so that really opened up a beautiful conversation between my parents and I to talk you know, as adult people together and for me to be able to kind of start to empathize and understand how it was for them. And when I was born, uh, the ultrasound technology was not as advanced as it was now. So Mm -hmm. my parents didn't know prior to me being born that I was going to have one hand. And so they found out literally on delivery that baby has one hand. Oh my gosh, is anything else different or perhaps internally, is there something wrong that we need to figure out? Like, what does this mean that this baby is coming out with one hand? Um, And I'm also from a very rural location, right? So as far as like resources outside of having a different body, it is few and far between. Hmm. Um, Anyhow, yeah, my, my parents really kind of, I was the third one in and once they were told that as far as like medically everything really was okay i just seemed to have one hand and and um to go forth and really sure it would affect my life but what does that actually mean go ahead it was very interesting to kind of listen to my mom start to try to process and even the things danny is processing in real time right now like mm-hmm. danny raised first day this book this capables book that we keep referring to that I got to jump on board and be a part of. It's, you know, Danny really imagining Ray, the character, going to kindergarten for the first time. And really this this is this character's first time away from the parents to advocate for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. To be alone mm-hmm. in the room where they are the ones answering the questions about their body. 
And that's that's got to be a big, huge, scary thing for the parents. And so to that point, I was talking to my mom exactly about that. And she's like, well, yeah, Nikki, don't you remember we made hand cookies and sent you to school with cookies in the shape of a hand? And that was your in to be able to like stand in front of the class and say, hello, my name is Nicole and I have one hand. And do you have any questions for me? You know, like, and I had completely forgotten that that was anything that happened in my life, that that was a piece of the experience. I hadn't paused to think, oh, my parents probably put a lot of thought into that. Yeah. Stayed up worrying late at night. What were they going to do with me? You know, um, so anyway, I so all of that to say is. Uh, I didn't even pause to realize that that reality was different and that was something that was Mm -hmm. hard for them. Um, As far as things that I wish they perhaps would have done a little differently, I think um, connecting into the disability community sooner certainly would have been amazing. Mm -hmm. This was pre-internet times, so things were just really different when I was growing up. Um, But that would have done a lot. And then I think the second thing that I strongly wish was that my parents would have um, taught me that I can say no to questions. You know, mm. my, my autonomy and my body is my own. So sure, people are going to come ask me questions. And that felt very common. It didn't feel shameful for me to answer those questions. However, if I didn't want to answer a question, I didn't have to. And I really wish that my parents would have shared that piece of the script with me. You know, we mm-hmm. really went through the script of how to answer and how to respond quickly and to move on. But like the script option to say no, thank you, mm-hmm. I wish would have been an option for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so powerful. Wow. I haven't even thought about that, but that makes so much sense. Yeah, I I'll jump in on that and speak from a parent perspective and, and say that, you know, it, it is scary. Um, it's scary because mm-hmm. we as adults know how difficult the world can be and how unfair the world can be and how mean the world can be. And I'm speaking from the perspective of a kid who's in the majority and I still got teased at school, mm-hmm. you know? So what I didn't realize when I was writing the first book is in a lot of ways, I was sort of like, self-processing mm-hmm. the fears that I had for my daughter's life in in real time. You know, if you look at our first book, the dad kind of looks like me. Um, <laughs> and he kind of sounds like me a bit because I knew that I could write that perspective really well. But I never mm-hmm. once thought when I was writing the book, oh, I'm actively writing my fears of what it's going to be like when my daughter goes to school for the first time. And it wasn't until... August of last year when she went to school for the first time where I really started to understand how scared I was um, of what kids were going to say and how that was going to impact her. And I think for us as parents of children with disabilities, whether they're visible or or non-visible disabilities, is I think we we are torn at times as to whether or not it's okay to be sad whether or not Mm -hmm. it's okay Mm -hmm. to feel traumatized or to grieve. Um, Because I think, at least for me, in the early days, and I've gone through a lot of therapy now to to help myself process this, and I encourage anyone else out there who's in the same boat as us to do the same, please. It's very helpful. Nothing wrong with it. Um, I realized that I, I think in some way I was afraid to be sad 
or I was apprehensive to be sad or recognize the grief because I thought in some way that meant I was ashamed of my daughter, Mm -hmm. which I could not be, that could not be any less the case because I am so proud of her and I love her so much, but it's part of your place in the story, right? Like I used to share with Nicole early days, like trying to figure out what my place in this story is. And, and Nicole has been such a great friend um, and confidant in the sense that like she's helped me to find my place in the story. And I think it's to encourage parents out there to own your truth. And if your truth Mm -hmm. is that you're scared and you're sad and you're hurt, that that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your child. You're sad and you're hurt because you love your child. You're not disappointed in them. You're not ashamed of the way that they look or the way that they act or the way that they talk or anything like that. You wrote this story for how this child's life was going to unfold because that's what we do as humans. We have dreams. We have visions of the way that things are going to work out. And guess what? That story didn't play out. And guess what? It's totally okay. Mm-hmm. It is to- Think about all the times in your life that you had these dreams and, and things worked out differently. And more often than not, they worked out for the better. You know, so so take a step back and sit in those feelings because you can't run away from them forever. And if you want to be the best parent you can be, if you want to be the most active, involved parent you can be, you have to find peace and truth within yourself first, because I guarantee you someday your child is going to ask you, how did this impact you? How did you feel? Were you sad? Were you disappointed? Whatever. And if you haven't processed all that, that's going to be a really difficult conversation for you to have with your child. And more than likely, you're not going to be able to be honest with them. And I think one of our biggest responsibilities and one of the biggest ways we can show love to our children or any human being is to be honest with them. Mm -hmm. If you're not honest with yourself first, you cannot be honest with anybody else. So just know that it's okay to be sad. It is okay to grieve. It's okay to be disappointed. It doesn't mean you love your child any less. Process it so that way you can live your life in an honest way and then hopefully go out and advocate for your child and be the best parent, the best human you can possibly be. Ah, I love that. That's what I have to say about that. So good. I'm glad you had to jump in with that because it was so yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> I wish all parents were as as willing to lean into their feels as you or Danny. So mm-hmm. I'm just yes. so excited for you too. But you know why they don't is because there's not nobody's talking about Correct. it. Correct. Yes. That's the problem. Like we've it's, got to change know, the culture. We've got to. We have to. It's like when when we went through fertility issues, even to have Emerson, I realized that. I didn't know anything about fertility. Nobody talked to me about this. My parents didn't tell me about fertility issues. They didn't talk about it in in health class. It was Mm -hmm. just like, hey, you want to have a kid? This is how you do it. And if you don't use protection, then boom, you're going to get pregnant. Like that's the the feeling you sort of grow up with in our generation. Mm -hmm. And then when it doesn't happen, you become incredibly traumatized and you don't know why you can't have a child. Everybody else is posting on Instagram and Facebook. They're all having kids all the time and nobody talks about it, especially us men. Mm -hmm. And the reality is like, There are millions of people around the world feeling exactly the same as you. So the best way to feel better is to talk about it Mm -hmm. because it's not going anywhere. A friend of me, a friend of mine said to me recently, what are you running away from and what are you running towards? And so often we're like running away from all this sort of stuff that we're like afraid to deal with. It's like, just sit in it and process it and, and let it be and know that you're not alone. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all figured out. Sit in the uncomfortable and just own your story because it's a beautiful story and it's yours and nobody else has it. So own it. Yeah. 
Anyway, if you ever want to talk about fertility, I'm happy to do that as well. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the disability uh, journey, but it's a conversation that does not happen yeah. nearly enough. And there are millions right. of people around the world dealing with it every day. So good. Well, I know we, we could probably sit here and talk all day <laughs> and maybe we'll do that another episode. We'll, we'll have you guys come back and, and we can certainly go around again and ask lots more questions. But um, so for today, I think that'll do it. Um, Angie, we said it was our 20th episode, but it's actually our 21st episode. So oh we're like past now. We're just like anything, you know, it's like once you like turn a certain age, you like forget the numbers. I think <laughs> I think we're there with our podcast. <laughs> yes. Oh, but man. yeah, we want to thank everybody for joining us for our 21st episode of Behaviorally Speaking. Our next episode will be on juggling parental stress. Um, and we're excited to be joined by another guest. So we'll have a, a guest again next time. And until then, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. You've been listening to Behaviorally Speaking with Angela Nelson and Kristen Bondi, brought to you by Will, a rethink division. Find out more at will.com. You can find past podcast episodes under the resources tab. We also invite you to subscribe, follow, like, and leave us feedback wherever you listen to podcasts. Your feedback helps us prepare topics and content for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day.